G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. I remember my mom went out to the back porch to check the clothes that were in the ringer washer. She wasn't gone long. The next thing we knew, she was banging back through the door, her eyes big and screaming at the top of her lungs. There's fire coming out of the upstairs window. Sure enough, flames and fire were roaring out. And we said, boy, this house is a goner. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. In 2001, Eric Scadabo and his wife Jean attended a Spanish language school on the Texas-Mexico border in preparation for becoming missionaries in Latin America. Well, Latin America never quite worked out for them, but while they were at language school, they met some wonderful people, including a couple with eight children, Ed and Debbie Somerville. And one of the things Eric remembers the most about Ed was that he was one of the best storytellers he'd ever heard. So when he found out that Ed had recently published a book filled with many of those same stories, Eric just had to make contact with Ed so he could hear them again and share them with you. So here's Eric chatting with Ed Somerville. Ed Somerville, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you with us, and you're coming to us from the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Is that right? That is true, and I understand you have some blue mountains in Australia, so I feel like a kindred spirit. That's right. Uh, Outside of Sydney, there's the Blue Mountains, and you wrote this book that we just heard about in the introduction, and it's called When Granddaddy Was Little Eddie, Tales from an Appalachian Boyhood. So what does that title mean? What, What is that all about? Yeah, the area of Appalachia, the Appalachian Mountains, here in the eastern part of the United States, is famous for hillbillies and moonshine <laughs> and uh, bluegrass music. And so uh, when I grew up in this area, it was a little unusual. I was the oldest of a family of eventually six boys mm-hmm. born to a Presbyterian pastor, and we lived kind of a rough and rowdy life, uh, hiking in the mountains, skinny dipping in the river, uh, <laughs> riding the ponies, and it was kind of like being at Boy Scout camp most of my life. But it didn't start out that way, is that right? No, that's correct. I was born in the Deep South back in the time of the Civil Rights Movement, where my father was a poor Presbyterian minister, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe he probably marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, okay. But that was not a popular position in the South. There were a lot of racism and I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with this, uh, a group of kind of domestic terrorists called the Ku Klux Klan that would oh, dress yeah. up in bedsheets yeah. and lynch black people. And one of the ways they tried to terrorize people was by burning a cross uh, on their front yard. And that meant that you were targeted by this terrorist group. So wow. when people learned that my father was uh, sympathetic, to the whole uh, racial equality and uh, the civil rights movement. One night, this group of terrorists appeared out in front of our house, 
and they actually burned a cross to try to intimidate my dad wow. and uh, chase him away. Yeah. And as the story goes, the next morning, he was not intimidated at all. He walked outside with his cup of coffee and his bathrobe, and when he came back in, his only comment was, sure was a small one, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but um, the people, unfortunately, in, in the churches also had that same issue of uh, racism, mm. and uh, so there was a conflict, and uh, they took a vote and asked my father to leave that area. Wow. And it was it was a sad thing, but he was always a crusader for justice and mm -hmm. fought for the underdog. Yeah. And so uh, his ministry changed from helping blacks to um, working with the very, very poor. And that's what led us up into the mountains of uh, Appalachia, into the state of West Virginia, which is the poorest state of the 50 in the United States. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, my father had this idea that if we were going to work with the poor, we were going to live like the poor. Mm -hmm. And so he moved our family into a run-down old house in a coal mining camp. And I remember we rented that house for $15 a month. Oh, wow. Which even then wasn't much money, but I still believe they charged more than the house was worth because <laughs> it was a wreck. And the main thing was it had no indoor bathroom. Uh -huh. So... What it had was a little small building out in the back corner of the yard uh, that was a, a privy, an outhouse that we uh -huh. would have to go to. Yep. So it was just the bare basics. Yeah, that is pretty bare. Uh, pretty run-down house you're living in there. You know what, though? We we didn't mind it. I, I was the oldest of... Uh, at that time, I had four little brothers, and um, we were always looking around for something to do. My mom encouraged our creativity... In fact, she had this uh, mantra that she said she would never let us watch TV because she said it would turn our brains to jello. <laughs> so she said, you boys have to go outside, get your wiggles out, find yourself something to do. And I imagine with five sons, there were a lot of wiggles to get out. So my brothers used to look to me for guidance and say, <laughs> what are we going to do today, Eddie? What are we going to do today? So this one day I had this brainstorm. I said, boys, I have this great plan. Uh -huh. I said, go get the shovels and the picks. We're going to go out in the backyard. We're going to dig a series of deep trenches, cover them back over with boards, and then cover the boards with dirt so we'll make our own tunnels, and we'll connect the tunnels together, and we're going to make ourselves an underground fort. Oh, my goodness. They thought that was great. <laughs> so we started in and worked all that day, went to bed that night, tired out, and the next morning out on our project of the underground fort, when all of a sudden we ran into bedrock. Now, oh. you can imagine bedrock put kind of a damper in our plans for an underground fort because you can't dig through bedrock. Oh, right. Okay. And those boys looked at me and said, now what are we going to do, Eddie? Hmm. And it was kind of a crisis of leadership, you know, because my great plan <laughs> had fizzled. Yeah. But in a moment of inspiration, I looked at that pile of dirt, about a four-foot-high heap of dirt, and I said, boys, I've got a better idea. I said, let's dig a crater down through the top of that mountain of dirt, make ourselves a little native village on the bottom, a model of a village <laughs> and some little twigs for a forest. We're going to make ourselves a volcano. Oh, my well, goodness. They got all excited about that. <laughs> How old were you about at this time? I was in eighth grade, which made me about 12, 13 mm -hmm. years old. Yeah. And uh, so I had had just enough, you know, experience with like little 
elementary school science fairs and that yeah, kind of thing yeah. to know mm-hmm. that a volcano wasn't a volcano unless it had some good red hot lava coming out <laughs> of it. So I said, boys, follow me. Grab that bucket over there and let's go to the tool shed and let's make ourselves a lava mixture. <laughs> well, I know I wasn't supposed to do this, but I went to a can of kerosene that said <laughs> flammable, do not use their fire or flame. And I said, boys, this ought to make some great lava. <laughs> and I dumped that in the bucket. And then we had some other uh, paint thinner that said the same thing. I poured that in there. Oh, Found no. several other, some old paint cans and dumped that in. Ran into the house, and um, at the time, there was a hobby that my mother was working on, making artificial flowers. She would Mm -hmm. take little hoops of wire and dip them into this liquid plastic. It was kind of a a purple art goop, and then let that dry on the wire rims to make little flower petals. Mm -hmm. We didn't care about the flower petals. What we cared about was on the bottle, it said, extremely flammable, do not (laughs) use the fire or flame. So we dumped that in the bucket, oh, and my then goodness. my younger brother, who was kind of the scientist in the family, said, Eddie, I have an idea. What we're missing, what will make this lava just the best lava ever is the science of chemistry. <laughs> and that chemistry set I got for Christmas, it has some little bottles of chemicals in it that say extremely flammable, <laughs> do not use their fire or flame. Well, he kept his chemistry upstairs in the attic, so we charged up the steps, and we got all those bottles that were flammable, poured them into one test tube, and then we needed some way to heat them up and mix them together. Well, we grabbed a little candle and a paper cup and set the candle up in there, struck a match to it, and then we held that test tube over it until those chemicals melted down nicely. Mm -hmm. Then we dumped that in the bucket, raced down the steps, and out to the backyard, I told my brothers, boys, stand back. This could be dangerous. <laughs> well, that's good. Poured that bucket of mixture <laughs> into the crater, struck a match, and dropped her there, down into the crater. Man with a big, giant car, whoom, the flame shot maybe 12, 15 feet in the air. <laughs> I leaped back with my eyebrows singed. The flames are going up beautifully. My brothers were clapping, and then to top it all off, that purple art goop heated up and began to boil over the sides of the volcano, rolling down the sides into the native village. It was an unqualified success, and we were a delighted, just so thrilled with our oh, wow. activity. But, you know, perfect working on a volcano can give you a little bit of a thirst on a hot day. Mm-hmm. So we patted each other on the back and headed inside to get a little drink of water, and guess who he ran into? Who? The pastor. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with his all-time favourite storyteller, Ed Somerville, whose book is called When Granddaddy Was Little Eddie, Tales from an Appalachian Boyhood. As we just heard, Ed and his brothers just had a great time making a volcano in their backyard. However, in their haste to run outside and set it off, they forgot that they left a candle burning in a paper cup in the attic. We'll find out what happens next when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. 
Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with his all-time favourite storyteller, Ed Somerville, who's sharing stories of his childhood growing up in the hills of Appalachia in the eastern United States. As we heard before the break, Ed was right in the middle of sharing about the time he and his brothers made a volcano in their backyard. And then they came inside to find their mother chatting with the pastor. The pastor of our church was sitting at the kitchen table and he was talking to my mom and they were having a cup of coffee. And so we kind of hung around and listened for a little while. But my littlest brother, who was just a toddler, about three years old, two or three at the time, he got a little bored, so he wandered outside, and a minute later, he came charging back through the door, his little eyes open, and he said in his little two- or three-year-old voice, Mommy, Mommy, there's fire coming out the window upstairs. Oh, no. And she, she said, There, there, honey. It's not nice to interrupt Mommy while she's talking to the <laughs> minister. <laughs> uh, well, they finished that cup of coffee. The pastor left. And I remember my mom went out to the back porch to check the clothes that were in the ringer washer. She wasn't gone long. The next thing we knew, she was banging back through the door, her eyes big, and screaming at the top of her lungs, there's fire coming out of the upstairs window! Oh, no. (laughs) Sure enough, flames and fire were roaring out. We pulled the door open to look up those little narrow steps that went to the attic, and it was a holocaust. And we said, boys... This house is a goner. We dialed a fire department that was about 15 miles away, and I ran off to grab some of my clothes out of our dresser that all my brothers kept their clothes in. I threw the dresser drawer right through the glass window, Oh wow! and I was about ready to run get their clothes when I remembered I had gotten a brand-new fishing pole for my (laughs) birthday, and I didn't want it to burn up. My brothers never forgave me for letting their clothes completely burn up because... Oh, so the next no. year they went around and hand-me-downs, which I had my own clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole back half of the house is just burning, and the black tar paper was melting and pouring off there like a waterfall when the fire truck finally pulled up in front of the house. And, you know, we lived out in the country, and there weren't such things as fire hydrants around, mm-hmm. so this was yeah. one of those old tiny tanker trucks. So they hooked the hose up to it and got the pump going, by this time, the neighbors had gathered around. The fire was sizzling, and the flames were starting to die down, and the crowd was cheering the firemen, and all of a sudden, they ran out of water in the tanker truck. Oh, no. <laughs> so what did they do? You know, well, in that area, you know, that happened all the time, and it was a very hilly, mountainous area, and at the bottom of all the valleys, there were little creeks and rivers. Mm -hmm. So they took an extra length of hose and they took a portable pump and ran down the hill, across some railroad tracks, and down the river bank. And they got that portable pump hooked up. Of course, it's taking time and the whole rest of the house is caught on fire. Oh, no. Yeah. Going up like a bonfire Mm. before they finally get the pump going. And here comes the water gushing out of the hose again. And another Mm -hmm. big cheer goes up. And they just about get the house put out when, guess what? What? 
we heard this very unsettling sound. At first we couldn't place it. What makes a noise like that? And then we realized it was the sound of a train whistle. Oh, no. And our all oh, no. our eyes, everyone in the crowd, all our eyes turned and looked up the valley. And here comes a train carrying a hundred coal cars, powering along about 50 miles an hour. And then our eyes noticed that the hose that the fireman is holding mm-hmm. runs down the hill, across the railroad track, oh, no. and down oh, to no. the river. Oh, no. Well, there's no way you're going to get a train with 100 cars of coal stopped in a half a mile. And it sailed right across that hose, and it just sliced it cleanly through. Oh, On wow. one side, here's the hose flying around, thrashing back and forth, and water flying everywhere. But up by the house, here's the fireman holding his end of the hose, and the water just dribbles down to nothing. By the time they finally got that thing spliced together, the whole rest of the house is just burnt down to nothing. Just some front stairs going up and falling off into an ash heap. My dad wasn't even there that day. He Mm -hmm. was away in the state capitol for a meeting. And uh, as he told about it later, he said he picked up a hitchhiker on the way home, and uh, the guy said to him, Hey, did you hear about that, that house that burnt down the, uh, up there, over there in our county where we live? But I said, No. He said, Yeah, it's a real shame. He said, Burnt clear to the ground. When he left that hitchhiker off, he drove up a little bit further to a place where you could look across the river and up on the hillside where our house used to be. Yeah. And it was gone. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I remember him saying how he drove... Uh, down across the bridge and came back up the little hill and drove up to where our house used to be, got out of the car and started walking around looking at the pile of smoking ashes and walked around to the back of the house. And there, wonder of wonders, was this four-foot-high <laughs> volcano with this purple lava that had kind of been flowing down the sides and had cooled off and hardened. And his eyes looked back over to the where the house had been in the smoking ashes back to the volcano and he had to stop and ask himself he said what do you suppose happened to my house he said <laughs> could it be that the one and only instance of volcanic activity in the history of our entire state happened to set my whole house on fire <laughs> and burn it to the ground <laughs> well we moved to another house after that that was uh, even worse than, than that one that we were living in. It wasn't until about a year later, my brothers and I were sitting around and reminiscing and talking about that wonderful volcano we built, when one of my brothers looked at me and said, do you remember when we were heating those chemicals up in the attic? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah. And how we took that candle and put it in a little paper cup and used that to heat up the test tube? I said, yeah. He said, did you ever remember blowing out that candle? And all of a sudden, it dawned oh, on no. my brothers and on me. Oh, no. It wasn't faulty wiring that had burnt our house to the ground. It was us. We were responsible for burning our house oh. all the way to the ground. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, that, well that's quite a story. Well... That was only one of many stories. There were some that were kind of tragic, and there were others that were kind of wonderful. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to tell you about um, how 
I came to know the Lord yes, there. Yes, please. In a really, really poverty-stricken part of, of our country. Uh-huh. There was a lady that worked with my dad. Her name was Big Shelby. And um, she was a very rough and brusque and kind of a foul mouth and a person who drank a lot, smoked a lot, had lived a very difficult life and carried a lot of bitterness around. And one day she came to the house to meet with my father. And when she walked in the door, she was different. She Mm. had been completely changed and she had a smile on her face and just a peaceful expression. And I couldn't help but looking at her and, and saying, Big Shelby, I said, what? happened? How mm-hmm. come you look so different? Yeah. And she said, well, she says, I gave my life to the Lord just a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and everything's changed. Everything is different. And um, I thought, oh, my word, you know, could this be my first encounter with a Jesus freak? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was seven years, teen years old at this time mm-hmm. and didn't really have much interest in religion or the church or anything. Mm -hmm. But um, Big Shelby was so dramatically and drastically changed that when she invited me to go with her to the church, I thought, well, hey, might as well go along and see what this is about, because it sure did something to Big Shelby. Yeah, yeah. So I had grown up in a very formal kind of a church where they had an organ in it, where when you walked in the front door, they would hand you a printed bulletin, you know, with all the things that were going to happen. Mm-hmm. We drove, got in her car that evening. We were going to go to a midweek service. And I remember driving for about 45 minutes up the curviest roads in the world and came to a little community that was right next to a place, I'm telling the truth, it was called Booger Hollow. Oh, really? (laughs) We pulled up in front of a little tiny church that had a pot-bellied stove and a little stovepipe going out the top. And... uh, it was called the Dorothy Church of God of Prophecy, hmm. and it was a Pentecostal church. Yeah. And in that part of the country, with all the poor people and uh, back in the mountains, when I say a Pentecostal church, I mean it was Pentecostal with a capital P, <laughs> and it was so different from anything that I had ever yeah. experienced before. Yeah. I walked up the steps, and a young couple, uh, there was a, a young husband, reaches his hand out to me and shakes it hard and says, Praise God, brother. And, you know, I wasn't used to having people tell me what to do when I walked into the <laughs> church. We got inside, and automatically I could tell things were different because there was no organ. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of kids, that pulled, one playing a guitar, one beating on a set of drums. I thought, drums in church? I said, wow. is that some kind of heresy? <laughs> when they started singing, they just stood up and they all began to clap their hands, and I'd never experienced that. We got time to pray, and they all prayed together out loud, and mm-hmm. tears rolling down their cheeks. I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. Yeah. A lady behind me started speaking in tongues, and I, I, I started thinking, man, I, I don't know if I can handle much more. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, culture shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then it came time for the preaching. Mm-hmm. And an old brother in Christ came to the front and opened his Bible. I think he only had a second-grade education. But when he began to speak from God's Word, it was like nothing I had ever heard before. Yeah. And it's such conviction. I mean, I've heard other pastors who talk like they knew something about God. Mm-hmm. But this old brother in Christ, he talked like he had breakfast with God that morning. <laughs> and everything he said was just striking me and hit me in the heart. Yeah, And I remember driving home with Big Shelby that evening in her mm-hmm. car, those 45 minutes around all those curves, 
fighting mm-hmm. the car sickness. And she said, well, Eddie, what'd you think? And I said, well, that's got to be one of the freakiest experiences of my life. But I have to be honest with you. I said, there's something there that I don't understand. Mm. And if I have to be honest with myself, I need to go back again and figure out what that is. Yeah. And you and I both know it was just the presence of God. It yeah. was just yeah. God's spirit there and his people there. And so when Big Shelby invited me to come back again, I took her up on it. And we went back two or three times. I remember that last time I went, the pastor said, if you're here tonight and you know in your heart you're not right with God, he said, come on down to the phone. We'd like to pray with you. And my knees were rattling like a sewing machine, but I knew I had to respond. And so I walked forward, and a couple of little old grandmothers, I remember they gently put their hands on my shoulder, and they prayed for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And how wonderful that was that... All that wild and crazy stuff that I had done all my life and all the ways I had tried to find acceptance from people and love from people mm-hmm. and uh, how I never knew that God accepted me and that He loved me. And I just remember being filled with that love and going home that night to my mother and telling her, for the first time in my life, I really and truly know what love is. Mm. And she gave me a big hug and she said, welcome to God's family. Amen. Well, that was part one of Eric Scadabo's conversation with his all-time favourite storyteller, Ed Somerville, who Eric and his wife met in 2001 at Spanish Language School in Texas, when they were all in training to become missionaries. Well, as you've already guessed by now, Ed has many, many more fascinating stories from his childhood to share, so we invite you to join us again next time to hear some more, including a close call he had with a copperhead snake. Also, you can read more of Ed's stories in his book, When Granddaddy Was Little Eddie, Tales from an Appalachian Boyhood, which is available online. But before we end today, I just want to say how great it was to hear Ed found acceptance from God at that little church in the hills. As it says in the Bible, to all who did receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that acceptance is still available today to all who believe and receive Jesus into their hearts. You can be adopted into God's family and become a child of God anytime. Well, thanks for joining us today for part one of Ed sharing his stories. Until next time, when we'll hear part two, I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. I had come back from prep school, boarding school, to be met by my third brother, little Jimmy, who had a tear in his eye and he said, Ed, my cat Tigger is in trouble. I said, why? What's wrong? He said, well, she's been having so many kittens that... Dad says he's going to have to do something about it. He said, Ed, you can't let that happen. I said, Jimmy, don't worry. I said, uh, I believe I can help with this problem. Ed Somerville is an excellent storyteller and has plenty of stories to share from his adventuresome childhood growing up in the hills of Appalachia in the eastern part of the United States. Ed joins us once again to share more of his entertaining stories, including the time he and his brothers decided to give the family cat a hysterectomy. Ed will let us know how it all works out next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.